0: Father, Son, and Spirit. We worship a triune God, the Trinity. This past week, Monday, I was out mowing my lawn for the first time this year, and I like to listen to music while I'm doing that, so I had Phil Wickham's sing along going and and this song, The Doxology was the first song that starts blasting, and as I'm listening to it, I was I was just I was moved, I was overwhelmed. I'm out there kind of tearing up and crying and not because of hay fever. I'm just I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by what God has done for us through salvation and all. And I was just it was it was incredible. I mean, if I could have lifted my hands, I would have, but then, you know, the self-propel would have turned off on the mower and that wouldn't have worked. And I'm like, "Oh, okay. Let's just let's just cut the lawn and and sing praises to God." And and it, and it struck me that as we moved into this week, it would be a great way to worship to come today and just spend time giving thanks to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Trinity. And so today, our opening music is literally a song to the Father. You can figure out which one that is. A song to the Son, a song to the Spirit, and then we're going to bring it all together by singing the Creed together. During the song to the Son, uh, we're going to celebrate once again His tremendous sacrifice for our sins by moving to communion. And so during that second song, you can move to either the tables at the back or the two at the front and go ahead and just receive with thanksgiving the gift of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. So why don't you stand? I'm going to pray and we're going to begin our worship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so today we are present, God. We are present that you are a holy trinity, three and one. We give you praise and thanksgiving for the work of salvation done for us, without which we would be lost forever. And because of that salvation, we will be with you in community forever as you have been in community for all of eternity. Thank you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.
1: See yeah. yeah. this time together, Lord. We thank you, Father, for being more complex than what we can wrap our heads around. Lord, we know that it's faith, God. It's faith, Lord. And, and God, we believe in you. We believe that Jesus was your son. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, God. And We believe in the Trinity, Lord. God, we worship you today with more than just our voices, God. Let us worship you with our lives and with our hearts and with our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen please be
0: seated. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship a living God. We worship a holy Trinity, and we are grateful that we get to be here the week after Easter, continuing to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Last Sunday was fun, wasn't it? I mean, Easter was a blast. It was crazy. It was fun to see the room packed. We had more people go through here last week than we've ever had. It was just absolutely crazy. People were parked on the lawn and parked across the street. We actually do that every week, but there were way more than usual. Kids' rooms were crowded. It was nuts. Shanahan police came before the first service, asked when the services get out, and they helped direct us out. I mean, that was just great. In fact, if you want, write them a little note this week to say thank you for for the work they did on our behalf, for the way they served us. All of it was a blast. Signs of, of a healthy, growing, vibrant church. But I gotta tell you, the, the part I loved the most was the conversations after, during the week, getting to talk to so many of you about the experiences that your friends and your relatives had coming to this place. Their observations said so much about you. People noticed, they noticed a kindness, a warmth, and a, and a relational authenticity. They saw people who love their church and love each other who love Jesus and want to love other people to Jesus as well. They noticed little things too, like, like free coffee. And that it was actually good, you know? I mean, I don't know how many times I can say it. Little things are huge. Little things really matter. They're difference makers. One guy said, I walk in this place and, and it just, it feels like home. And you may think that numbers are exciting to me, and I, I'm not going to lie, a full room beats an empty one, Okay. But, but, but the thing that puts a smile on my face all week long is when I hear that people experience who we are and that who is consistent with who we want to be. I love when people can smell our culture and they get it. I don't know what kind of church you, you came from in the past. So many drill vision. Vision is really important. And vision is good, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti vision. But we already have a fantastic vision. It was given to us by our founder and our king, Jesus. He said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And you can be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. It is hard, it is really hard to make up a better vision statement than that one. He says, get at it, gang. Make disciples. Spread like wildfire around the world. And know this, no matter how dark it may get, no matter how tough it may be, no matter what, you are never, ever alone. I am with you. I am with you always. I am with you to the last strike of the last inning. I am with you forever. Some will debate whether this verse is a, a mission statement or a vision statement, whatever. To me, after 30 years at this, I really believe culture trumps vision. A healthy culture grows a great church and grows great people. A healthy culture determines how we do the vision that Christ gave us. I have a friend who made this observation. If, if our church needs a big banner out front telling people how much we love people we probably don't love them very much. People should know by who we are, by our actions, that's how they should know our identity. And so we have spent a couple decades tilling the soil of culture, and what has emerged is something truly beautiful. It is a culture that is consistent in reflecting the nature and the spirit of Christ And mind you, it is not a simplistic culture. There's complexity to it and there's nuance to it. For example, part of our culture is loving people and true love is not sappy and schmaltzy, overlooking sin and glazing over problems. True love has tough talks. But let me say from from my own experience, building a culture like this one was way more difficult than relocating from Black Road and building this facility. It is brutal work. Last Sunday, Kim Shelley and I, on Easter evening, went to see The Case for Christ. you got to see it if you haven't seen it yet. The main theme of the movie is, is Lee Strobel's journey from atheism to the foot of the cross. That journey really centers about, around the rela- his relationship with his wife, who became a Christ follower prior to him. He's trying to disprove her faith as she patiently is praying him into the kingdom a woman who is mentoring her gives her a verse and she starts to pray it over Lee. It's from Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That verse describes the culture transplant that our church has undergone over the last couple of decades. God gave us a new heart a new spirit, a heart of flesh, where there was once a heart of stone. You see, in the past, we had a heart of stone toward lost people. Though they mattered to God, they didn't matter an awful lot to us. We focused on the fold and not the field. We cared for the sheep that were already here and not the ones being eaten alive by the wolves. We had a heart of stone toward change. Every week was a replay of yesterday, fully entrenched in 1957 or 1977, but not moving into 1997, let alone aiming toward 2007 or 2017 one day. Like those who hold on to old clothing in the attic, hoping that the style will come back around, we held on to old ways of doing church, hoping someday the world would come back to its senses. And we also had a heart of stone toward each other, Some people loved some people, but few people loved all people. People in wars would sit on opposite sides of the sanctuary. Some would refuse to talk with others or even be in the same room with them. Gossip and backbiting was the name of the game. Vulnerability was not present. It could not be present because it exposed you to a future attack. What people saw last week was not present 20 years ago. What people saw last week didn't just happen. And what people saw last week is in danger of slipping away all the time. All the time. A beautiful facility with a bad heart is worthless. It's not a church worth attending. Heart matters. Culture matters. Today we are embarking on a three-week miniseries we're calling The Road Ahead, Paving the Way. In three weeks, on May 7th, we'll gather to decide on on expanding our facility. Uh, It's kind of unreal, if you ask me. Certainly not where a bunch of us dreamed we would be just a couple years ago. We barely settled into our new home, and we're already looking at knocking out a wall and adding a bedroom. I mean, it's it's surreal to me. It's just kind of crazy. This event provides an important moment. a A moment to stop and reflect on the road ahead. And that road is not about buildings It's about who we are and what we value and who we will continue to become. Next week we'll talk about dreaming about the future and in two weeks we'll focus on making room for more. But today we're going to focus in on clearing the debris. Around Southfield we have a handful of iconic images that tell our story. They define us. In fact, you, you find most of them on the wall, just the opposite side of the, the welcome desk out, out in the gathering area, in that couched area. On that wall, you'll see pictures of, of day camp and baptism, students, friends, leaders, prayer chairs. There is one we need to add to it. It was taken when we were, we were clearing the land out here. In, in the detention area, just out front, so you go out this door, right out front there, there are tons of scrubby little trees Years of uncontrolled overgrowth. We were told we could save like 15,000 bucks if we cleared it ourselves. So we got hit it. So Dave Papish got some equipment from a good friend. And we started. With chainsaws whining, and a bunch of us did our best lumberjack imitation, and we got to work. It was hot. I mean, it was so hot. We were just sweating our brains off. It was so, so hot. We cleared and cut and piled huge stacks of scrub trees. It was our intent to burn them while the wood was fresh and it was wet. So the burning turned more into like a huge smoke fest. In fact, if we had some pork and put it out there, we'd have had some fine smoked meats. But, but we needed a fire, we needed a blaze. Jim Van Eck showed up, apparently a pyro at heart. I mean, what guy isn't a pyro in the making, right? He shows up with his leaf blower and he starts blowing on these smoldering tree piles. Honestly, I thought he was kind of nuts. I'm also the guy in 1985 that was standing in silo convincing customers that CD players were a bad idea. They were never going to take off. So don't take investment advice from me. Before you knew it, Jim had several fires going. A raging blaze was kindling. I mean, you could feel it from forever away. Here is the picture you've got to see. This thing's crazy. Here he is. He's blowing away at that fire. Cinders are flying in the air. The clouds of death are behind us. I mean, he's, just, he's having a great time This stud, just getting that fire going, making this thing happen. This image displays for us a spiritual reality. Before God can do a new work in us, the old debris needs to be cleared. Before we could build anything out there, there was some debris that needed to be cleared. And the same is true for us. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In 1995, the debris that needed to be cleared was obvious. We needed a heart for the lost. We needed a heart for God. We needed a heart for each other. And we needed a heart for some change. I look at us now. I look at us last week. And I ask God before you do something new in us, what needs to be placed on the pile and consumed? Well, before we focus on the what, I want to spend some time on the how. How, how does God clear the debris? What tools does he use? Not, not just in a church, but in our personal lives to get us ready for his next great work. How does he remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh? Well, there is no question the people of Israel, as recorded in the Bible, are real people. It's a historical reality. They existed. And much of what happened to them from slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land has been proven through archaeology. I say this because I wouldn't want you to misunderstand my next point. The older I get and the more I grow in faith, the more I see the journey of this people group as a metaphor for our own spiritual walk. Both as a body and as individuals. In so many ways, their journey reflects our journey. Their story depicts our story. Watching their wandering and the ways God worked in them shows us how the spiritual life works. God had his supernatural hand on these people. He protected them. He fought for them. Sometimes they fought with him and he was preparing them. He was growing them from a family of about 70 people into a nation of millions, from slaves in a foreign land to caretakers of the promised land. What was that spiritual principle again? Before God can do a new work in us, the old debris needs to be cleared. They had a lot of debris to clear. And God used two tools to pile the trees and whip up the flames. The first tool he used for them was the wilderness. Between Egypt and Israel is some rugged terrain. It is the dictionary definition of wilderness. You're not going to find a more brutal territory. Some estimate that the straight line walking journey from Egypt to Israel is about an 11 day walk. Now let's just say they took a lot of water breaks along the way you know, dragged it out, kind of like our family when we drive two hours. I mean, they, they dragged it out. And instead of 11 days, it was 22 days. In fact, let's stretch it a little bit more. Let's stretch it to 30 days, a full month, three times what it should have taken. It took them 40 years, 40 years. That's, that's like 39 years and 11 months longer than it should have taken. That is one broken GPS. What is going on? What in the world Is happening here. Well, the first thing we need to understand about the wilderness, the walk is seldom a straight line walk. On purpose, God did not have them walk a straight line. He did not have them take the quickest line between two points. Exodus 13, 17 tells us, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs along the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way. Doesn't that feel like your journey sometimes? God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. God knew that the straight line journey would lead to adversity that might cause them to recalculate. So they took the longer way around the Philistines. Have you ever knowingly taken the long way to avoid adversity? I have. Back in the day, I walked to school. I know we used to do that. Crazy. First grader, I'd walk a half mile. Half mile there, half mile home. Full mile of walking every day for a little first grade grade foot. I mean, that, that that's practically child abuse. You know, it's, it's just terrible. Can't believe that. Walk to school every day. We'd go down Locust Street, <clears throat> hit Spruce Street, take a right, get to Spruce School. Four tenths of a mile, according to Google. I think it was more like seven or eight miles. But, you know, and it says I think it should take eight minutes. It took us, I don't know, two hours. Anyway, there we were, walking to school. We're having a great time. Now, as you're walking along the path, you got to see this house right here. Ding. This house, at this house, there was a German shepherd. Big, nasty, drooled German shepherd. Ugly, rotten, nasty dog. He's just mean. He's sitting there always, you know, bouncing against his chain and growling and barking. I mean, there wasn't a day we walked by that that thing wasn't barking away. And we're like, thank goodness he's in a pen, you know? So one day we're walking to school. And as we're walking, we look over and the pen is open and the dog is free. And thank goodness there was somebody ahead of us because he started to run and that German shepherd started running after him. And he went and he clamped onto that kid's leg and he like dogs do it gave him a really good bite and we ran for our lives. We were terrified. What do you think we did the next day? Ding! We took a different route. <laughs> yes, we added a tenth of a mile to our journey. We upped it by two minutes, but there was no possible way that we were gonna walk by that dog. Just to give you the comparison of the routes, here we are once again. Yes, we took the long way because we did not want to face adversity. The wilderness seldom involves straight lines. And why is that? Sometimes God knows we are not ready for what is ahead of us if we take the straight line path. We need the detour to grow. When we left Black Road, in 2008 and headed to Shanahan Junior High, most of us never dreamed we would be there for seven years. 2008 to the end of 2014, right up to 2015. Now, I got to say, those were great years. We loved the school. We loved the staff. It was a great time, but we had a different plan. We planned on a few years in the school, and then we were going to move into our nice big new home, We left Black Road with plans in hand to build a 30,000 square foot facility. And i got to tell you, in 2008, if someone had shown us the drawings for this place and said, build this instead, we would have smiled politely and we would have laughed like crazy as soon as they walked out of the room. There is no way we would have gone along with that. Seven years later, on Christmas Eve 2014, we walked into this place gushing, with gratitude. The crooked road changed us. It prepared us for what God wanted rather than our self made plans and our self styled desires. The wilderness has lots of crooked roads and it is hot and it is hostile. God used those 40 years of hoofing it through the sand to replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. What are the great lessons? Of the wilderness? Well, the first one is this God can be trusted. God can be trusted. He's trying to teach us in the wilderness that He can be trusted. As they left Egypt, the slaveholders changed their minds. They came after the Israelites with horse drawn chariots to overpower them and bring the survivors back to Egypt as slaves. Moses cries out to the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The hostility of the wilderness teaches us that God can be trusted to do what we cannot do ourselves. And so we get to stand back and see the work of God. We also learn in the wilderness that God will provide what we are not able to provide ourselves In Exodus 16, we're told the children of Israel entered the wilderness of Sin. I mean, talk about a double whammy of a name, right? Not only the wilderness, but the wilderness named Sin. What do you do in a wilderness named Sin? Well, you whine and you complain and you get grumpy and you get irritable. What did they do? They recalled the good old days. Oh, if only you had killed us back in Egypt, God. I'd rather be dead. They, they, There were these pots filled with meat. And we ate all the bread we wanted. And now you brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. You know, there were times, i got to admit, that we whined in our own wilderness, setting up and tearing down, portable, when we wanted to be permanent. I'm not sure if anybody ever said, if only we could go back to, go back to Black Road, but, but I thought it once or twice, honestly. I wondered if I had led God's people into the wilderness to die. What does God do for these people? He makes at least four supernatural provisions for them. He sends them bread from heaven. He stacks meat up to their eyeballs. He gives them water from rocks and sandals that never wear out. I mean, look, seriously, Deuteronomy 29. For 40 years I led you through the wilderness, yet your clothes and sandals did not wear out. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other alcoholic drink, but he provided for you so you would know that he is the Lord your God. Catch that last part. He did not provide for the sake of providing. He provided so you would know that He is the Lord, your God. And so we learn a lot about God in the wilderness. There's something else that happens in the wilderness. In the wilderness, God takes the taste of Egypt out of our mouths. In one of their whinier seasons, we get this classic statement from the Israelites. It says, then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat. We remember the fish we used to eat for free. They were slaves. Nothing was free, right? And had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. Our taste buds are dead. All we ever see is this manna, 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 manna. All for the good old days. Remember when? The wilderness helps us to know God better. And it helps us to see ourselves better. We find that we are not as grateful as we think we are. With this full of bread from heaven, they're saying, we are sick of this. We want something new. What have you done for us lately, God? The wilderness grows our view of God. And it deepens our understanding of ourselves. While wandering the crooked path, God is shaping us and molding us, preparing us to take possession of the land of promise, a land we thought we were ready to possess, but one that God says, not yet, not quite yet. Now, can I say, the last two years at Southfield have not been a wilderness season. We have been basking in sunshine and drinking milk and honey like crazy. Uh, But I do know this. Many of us in our personal lives are in wilderness seasons. Jobs and marriages, kids and cares feel a lot like a 40-year wander. Having spent seven years in a harsh wilderness, let me say this. Before God can do a new work in you, the old debris needs to be cleared out. Some wilderness time may be in order. Don't fight it. Just walk and watch and learn. Stand back and witness the power of God. Grab a fistful of manna and say thanks. Resist the urge to whine. Know that the long, winding path is part of God's plan too. God uses the wilderness to grow our trust. There's another tool that he uses as well. He uses war to grow us. Now, by war, I'm not talking about you know, military battle. I'm talking about adversity. I'm talking about struggle. I'm talking about hostility that comes against us. Early in their journey, they had avoided the Philistines. But 40 years later, they cross the river and they start to fight. And they, fight. and they fight and they fight and they fight. Not with each other, but with God's enemies. This is a whole sermon in itself, okay? But I have like a page left, so it's going to be short. War teaches us a few lessons. First of all, it teaches us to know when to take action and when to stand back and watch God work. Sometimes God battled for them. Go walk around Jericho seven times, blow a trumpet, boom, walls fall. Are you kidding me? Really? That's great. 300 guys with Gideon, light lamps, crash them, scream, and... and God goes ahead and God of, the God of angels' armies fights the fight for them. But other times they were commanded to take up arms and do battle. And mind you, that was the Lord's battle too. In the battle we learn that there is never a one-size-fits-all solution. Sometimes miraculous, miraculous things seem miraculous. And sometimes they seem more like us just taking care of business. But it is the miraculous nonetheless. I know more than a few people that have been playing Jewel Monopoly in hopes of maybe helping with the building. Oh, that'd be fantastic. You know, woo, wonderful. But sometimes miracles don't happen that way. Sometimes he uses us to do his work. The battle has this tendency uh, to do a great work in us. Another work that it does is that it grows our strength it grows our endurance. It grows our courage. And it grows our character. As they fought, they grew stronger and stronger. This is such a lost principle in our teacup society. Oh, for flowery beds of ease. If, there, if there's adversity, we must have done something wrong. It, it should always ever be easy. You know, I look at the, the future of religious freedom in America. The, the next generation is going to have its hands full. Secularism is going to bring the war to the church with both barrels. Does this spell the end for us? Well, not if we accept the spiritual reality. That adversity grows us. It grows character. James said, Dear brothers and sisters, When troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, Your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And when your endurance is fully developed, You will be perfect and complete Needing nothing. For our church, this has not been a wilderness season. And it has not been a season of war. But for some of you, you were in the most intense battles of your lives. And you wonder if the battle's going to kill you. In the battle, God is saying, before I can do a new work in you, the old debris needs to be cleared. It might be the debris of self-reliance. It might be character that is less than fully formed. It might be the need for courage and endurance. Our church since that Christmas Eve of 2014 has not been in the wilderness, nor has it been at war. We've been through both, I promise you, to get to that date. But since that time, it's felt a lot like promised land living. So why raise these two concepts today? Well, regardless of the presence of wilderness or the presence of war, I do wonder what debris needs to be cleared from us today before God can continue to do his mighty work in us. Let me suggest three temptations that creep into every body of believers. Happens every time. The first is the tendency to turn arrogant, to think we're all that. I mean, we could look around at last week. We could look at day camp. We could look at our kids' programs. We could look at students. We could look at the stuff that's happening and just go, man, you know what? We know how to do church right. I mean, woo! this, this is something else. Other churches should model themselves after us. We could, get, we could get real proud of us and just say, this is great, isn't it? The day in which our church stops pointing at Jesus is the day we have a huge problem. Everything and anything that has happened here is because of what he has done in us and he has done through us and he has done for us and we're always only ever pointing to Christ. Another way that we become arrogant is when we think we know better than God. When we take his book and we say, I like most of it. Parts of it don't quite work with my style. You know, I might, there, there's a page there that I'm not crazy about. The Apostle Paul, he gets a little too nutty for my taste sometimes. I'm going to drop some of his stuff. There are parts I'll go with. I like some of these nice promises. Some of those commands, we'll skip those. That, that's, that's the height of arrogance. To pick and choose a la carte the parts of the Bible we want to obey and the parts we think that we can avoid. No, God is calling on us constantly. He says, walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly with your God. We've always got to be sure that that tendency toward arrogance is not creeping in to think that we're all that. The second tendency is to turn inward, to want to spend all of this on us. This is the gravitational pull of every human heart, inward, always inward, and not in a good way. We get hooked on our favorite pronouns, my, me, mine. Our mission, according to Jesus, is to depopulate hell and relocate souls to heaven. We can never, ever, ever come to a place of putting a no vacancy sign out front, literally or figuratively. Some are going to be tempted to say, but, but I like a small church. Uh, you know, that line, I get what you're saying. I get the spirit of it. But can you honestly stand in front of Jesus, nail prints in his hands, scar from the crown of thorns on his brow, and stand there and say, Jesus, it's time to close up. It's time to close up. I'm in. That's good enough. Let's settle with this. We just can't do that. We want his heart that is always reaching more for him. But I promise you this. If inward becomes our direction, small will happen. Followed by smaller and smaller and soon dead and closed. That's the direction we were going in 1995. Inward and shrinking fast. Soon to be another statistic outward eyes outward eyes always outward eyes a final tendency of any church is to turn backward loving yesterday more than embracing tomorrow her church is 135 years old you may not know that we do not act very 135 we we're pretty vibrant and vigorous we act like a kid and these are good days these are really good days we might be tempted to try to freeze them. You know, just say, let's keep it like it is. Don't change a thing. We don't want to lose what we have. Years from now, in a season that is, that is less glorious, we might be tempted to look back on today with fondness. Like the Israelites, we might long for the good old days of meats and leeks and onions and garlic. Well, in the words of the inestimable theologian William Joel, the good old days ain't always good. And tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. eems. As long as we choose to be healthy, I can promise you this. We will always embrace one constant. We will always have to embrace change. We will always change. Change is inevitable. The variable is not change. It is how you will encounter it. Will you embrace it or will you resist it? We've been doing some clearing out out back. I don't know if you've ever been back there. We have this beautiful grove of oak trees. Some are incredibly mature, over 100 years old. Beneath, while untended, brush has taken root. Brush always takes root when things are left untended. In the church, the brush of arrogance, of inwardness, and petrification are always seeking a sliver of soil in which they can take root. And this is our constant battle with the weeds of the institutional soul. We can keep them clear ourselves. Or, if we let them take root deeply, God might see fit to use a season of wilderness or a season of war to clear the debris. As we look toward our future, we must look at our present How are we doing? Do we love ourselves too much? Do we love the lost too little? Are are we not wanting to leave the present to launch into whatever God has next? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Before God can do a new work in us, any old debris needs to be cleared away. And so I ask you, let's be willing to sincerely examine ourselves so we'll be ready to do whatever great new work God has before us. This week, take some time. Take some time to look at your own life. Take some time to look at your life in terms of your involvement here. And just ask God sincerely is there debris that needs to go on the pile and be burned? You might come over and sit in the chairs that we have out in the, lawn, in the lawn and talk to God. There are going to be some days this week, it's going to be 70 beautiful days to sit out and talk to God in the lawn and just ask that question. What debris do you need to, to have cleared in my life, God? I can promise you this, when we look at the debris of life, one area that's just a constant weed that pops up, the dandelion of our soul is, uh, is relational conflict. We, we all have different tastes, we all have different opinions, we all have different backgrounds, and it is so easy to have relational rubs. And, and and to just take a little offense and before you know it, let it become a root of deep bitterness. Maybe that's an area that God is just calling and saying, you know what, it's time to me, for me to get back to loving. Not loving myself so much that I'm going to protect myself but loving enough to be vulnerable, to step out, to do the repair work it takes in order to have harmonious relationships. I don't know what it is. But I promise you, wherever there's a body of people, there's always some weed, some tree, something trying to take root that God says, I want to clear that out. I have great plans for you. Great plans for you. So let's cooperate with him in his effort. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, Son and Holy Spirit, we present ourselves before you. Do your weeding work. Remove the brush from us. Do whatever is necessary to prepare us for the next great work you have prepared for your people. We truly do not like the wilderness, and we can't stand war. But we are open to anything you need to do to make us the people you desire. In Jesus' name, amen.